Bible reading for us today. Uh, for this last of our uh, Saturate uh, series talks, which is on the evangelical stream. And uh, I haven't put the text up there deliberately. I want you to uh, just enter into the story. If you want to follow along in your own uh, Bibles, you can, but you're so welcome to just uh, listen to the reading and enter into the story. I'm sure it's one of the Chapter 24, verses 13 to 32. Now on that same day, two of them, that is two disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. When they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and looked with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, his name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed and worthy for God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the men, the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, they walked, he walked ahead as if he was going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road 
Namaste, and they got up and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord is risen indeed. And he has appeared to Simon. Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had made known to them, how he had been made known to them in his raising from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. stories that make the hair stand on the back of my neck, not because of what happened, but what might have been. Here's a story about a family visiting friends overseas in their family home. Everyone was having a wonderful time until one of the adults noticed, to their horror, that the young son of the visiting family had gotten onto a narrow ledge and was happily making his way from one end to the other. Now this would be dangerous enough, but the ledge that he was navigating was on the balcony of an apartment on the sixth floor. So, family on one side and the sixth, sixth floor dropped the other. Not wanting anyone to startle the boy by rushing towards him or calling out the father told everyone to be quiet and stay calm, and he quietly made his way over to his son and scooped him up in his arms and brought him down from the ledge. Now, how much the child realised at the time, I don't know, uh, but in, in retrospect, I'm, I'm sure that this story of the near miss has uh, sort of uh, gained legendary status in that family. This story of childhood exploration on the cliff edge of autonomy, of what might have been, what might have gone wrong, but did not go home for. I'm sure it was remembered with great pain. And this story led me to remember a day when my own eyes were opened, when I suddenly realised the cliff edge that I, along with all of humanity, was standing on. As a child, I had been raised in a Christian household. I knew that I was loved by God, and I loved attending Sunday school and to pray. But one day, I heard a gospel sermon that hit me like snowy salts, waking me up to a more adult understanding of spiritual reality. For I could suddenly see the knife edge on which the human condition resides, that illusion of human of happy self-sufficiency without regard to God. And as I heard the message of the cross of Christ explained in ways that I understood for the first time, I faced two realities of both my belovedness, but also my human tendency and my proclivity for sinful autonomy. So, as this last hymn was being sung, and I don't know whether you've been to services like this, but they usually play a, a hymn that's very rousing and very moving. I was out of my aisle like a shot out of a gun going down the front uh, to pray 
actually been raised in the land was for. And this really is the nature of the smelly salts of biblical witness. It exposes the knife edge of the autonomy on which the whole humanity resides. It's an illusion. We're all a little bit like spacemen wandering around, wandering off from the mothership in search of freedom, refusing to come back, still attached to the now, enjoying the privilege of oxygen, until in our own persistent insistence to pull away, we break away. This is not freedom, this is slavery. And the drama of the Bible is God's relentless pursuit of us to restore us to our true freedom, which is found in surrender to God. And he does this in the Bible by choosing one man and then one nation for which the promised Messiah would come. God's chosen king, a human being who would be God's representative, not to make slaves of us, but to bring harmony to all our fundamental relationships, starting with our relationship with God. And that brings us to our passage today. Because the way that this restoration happens is an unexpected mystery. It's hinted at in the Old Testament, but it's not really here. And that is the mystery of the cross. And it's the dilemma of the cross, the fact that Jesus died, and the specific kind of death that he died that's upsetting these two disciples. And this passage is like a spine-tingling account of Revelation as Jesus puts the smelling salts of all of the scriptures pertaining to himself under the noses of these disciples to wake them up to this mystery. But let's just digress for a little moment and think a little bit now about Jesus' own use of scriptures during his lifetime. We see his investment in the scriptures early in the, in the only story about his childhood that we have as he sits in the temple asking questions of the te teachers, learning. Jesus clearly saw the scriptures as having authority. He knew it, he memorised it. He frequently quoted the scriptures against his opponents. In his hour of need, against the devil's temptations in the wilderness, it was the scriptures that he turned to. In the harrowing hours of the crucifixion, the scriptures were on his lips. He affirmed that he came not to abolish the law of God in the Old Testament, but to fulfil the law. And he had stern warnings about people, uh, anyone encouraging others to diverge from God's commandments and disregard them. He understood himself as uniquely in a position to interpret the scriptures, and he considered all of the scriptures pointing to himself. And this story, this passage, is such a beautiful example of Jesus' mastery of the scriptures and how he uses it to show himself as the climax of all of scripture. So as we read in the passage, this happens on the day of his actual resurrection. The eleven apostles have been told. These disciples in the outer circle of that group are aware that something has happened at the, at the tomb, but all they know is the body's not there and the women have seen some angels, but they don't really know what's going on. 
ultimate Bible study, right? I, I mean, it's such a great context. Just picture yourself going, this is a group that's small. Everyone in it is keen. They've got some great questions. And, you know, it's not stuck in a, in a room. They're out in the open air. They're walking along. And they've got the best Bible study leader ever who's just joining the dots for them and making everything so clear. Because, see, there's two things that they can't work out. There are two things that seem to be going in completely the opposite directions in what they know about Jesus. Jesus is clearly blessed. He's empowered in his ministry. He's clearly a holy man and fully surrendered to God. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to do the things that he does in the healings, in the miracles, and he certainly wouldn't be teaching the kind of teaching that he gives. But he dies, and he dies not just any death, but he dies a very certain death, the death of the crucifixion. And the crucifixion is designed to render you a non-human. Furthermore, this was a death that was deeply symbolic in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 21 and 20, verses 22 and 23, it says that the death of someone, the cursed, there is a necessity of removing anyone who had been put to death for a capital offence by hanging on a tree, because anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. So it's not just that Jesus died, it's that he dies the death of someone who is cursed by God. So they can't work out these two things that are going in opposite directions. And Jesus shares with, with them what I think he spent his young life piecing together, and that is the mystery contained in the scriptures, and that is the Messiah would have to suffer. And so he takes them on a canonical journey, a journey through the whole of scriptures, through all the prophets and the writings, explaining all that was said about himself. So it's like picking up stitches that have been lost or dropped, um, and he threads them together to form a coherent understanding. And they love what they're hearing, and they want to hear more, and so they ask him to stay on. And I love the fact that he kind of pretends that he's sneaking off, right? But they say, no, he can't come and stay with us. So he comes inside and he stays with them. And it's as he's breaking the bread that they recognise. They recognise him because they have seen him do it before. But notice that it is actually this journey through the scriptures that Jesus is taking them on that helped them have their encounter with him. It's this encounter with the scripture that leads to this personal revelation. And that's one of the key tenets of the evangelical tradition. That the purpose of the scriptures is to reveal Christ in a way that leads to personal encounter. To know not just about him, but to know him. The written word points to the living. Now, the revelation of Jesus is that Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord to be proclaimed. This resurrection shows that he's the Lord 
of life because he's con conquered the human problem, death. And this death is the natural human outcome for human autonomy. Jesus is the one who lives in perfect surrender to the Father, but he dies the death of the blasphemer, as if he had insisted on his own autonomy and was cursed by God. And as he dies this death, in doing so, he pulls with him over the ledge the tragic outcome of all our collective illusions. Our collective autonomy is pulled down into death with him. And he rises from death to give life to any who would live, who would leave their autonomy behind. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the smelling salt that is offered to the world, to all of those living on the cliff edge of autonomy. That we would behold his death and his resurrection and turn from our illusion of autonomy and have real life. But the danger is not over. The danger of illusion is always present. There are certain sleep-inducing fumes that can lull us back into complacency. And so we need to keep bringing ourselves back to these smelling salts again and again. There are many fumes that conspire to keep us in this soporific, sleepy state. And I just want to touch on one of them, to which I think we're particularly susceptible in the West, and that is the sleep-inducing fume of privilege. And I say that because I think in this climate where People who have faith are tempted to doubt. People who have doubt are tempted to believe. But there's something about our privilege that makes it even more possible for us to just wander away. And I know I've, I have many friends and people I know who used to walk with the Lord. And it's not like they've had a major faith crisis. I think it's just without being over-simplistic, and I know there's a lot of reasons for why this happens, but I really think privilege just helps to keep this illusion of autonomy alive. It stops us seeing a need for God and living in a posture of surrender. It's easy to believe we're self-sufficient, and it's very easy to feather our nests on that privilege of autonomy. It's a really spiritually dangerous activity. But you know, this seems like a modern challenge, but in fact it's a really ancient one. One that the prophets of the Old Testament spoke to, and one that Jesus himself mentioned. The prophet Amos was at pains to put these smelling salts before his listeners. He warned them about the spiritual complacency that God had welcomed into him. He says, Woe to you who are complacent, you who lie on beds of adorned with ivory, that lounge on your couches, dine on choice lands, and he goes on and on. And Jesus himself offered these same smelling salts to rouse his listeners from the same danger in the parables. Remember, it's ones that enjoy the good things in life and fail to find the invitation to enter the kingdom of God compelling of those invited to the wedding banquet feast, the rich, the maybe, 
while the poor are the sick of the land, give her a sound rest. But this is not a sermon about wealth, and we know wealth isn't the problem. Money's not the problem, it's the love of money. My point is that our need for ongoing revelation is real. Because it goes beyond recognising Christ as Saviour, but searching the scriptures constantly to hear his voice and to learn how to live under him as Lord. And this is what the evangelical tradition affirms. It affirms that everything that we have for life and faith is in the scriptures. But the Bible just doesn't just affirm our problem about what the solution is and how to live. The revelation of scriptures and Jesus doesn't stop there. It reveals to us where we're headed. And that is the glorious age to come. And history will be wrapped up when Jesus returns. He's returning unambiguously as the clear Lord of all creation. Bringing in his kingdom. A kingdom of willing subjects. Joyfully surrendered. Because they know that being his subject is the best offer possible for a human to be given. Sometimes I think about that boy on the balcony ledge, a distant relative of mine, now a man, and I wonder, when was it that he was saved? He was saved when he was snatched from the ledge, but he was saved earlier too. He was saved when his father spoke peace to calm those watching. And much earlier on, when he was born to a loving family and a father whose invitation to surrender he could trust. And I think about my own story. When was I saved? Was it the day I ran down the church aisle to pray the sinner's prayer? I was saved then. As I was saved the day when my parents dedicated me as a baby in a Baptist church prayer service. I was saved when I was born to a believing mother and a preacher father who raised me in the faith. I was saved when my grandmother heard the gospel as a displaced Russian migrant in the back plots of China. I was saved when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and the world was changed forever with the incarnation, the first fruits of the new creation. God constantly doling out the snow and salts of revelation across salvation's history as well as my personal history, telling me, telling all of us, who he is, who we are, and what we need, what he's done about it in Christ, and the new creation he's romping in. So, this is the legacy of the evangelical tradition. It is that the biblical witness culminates in the climax of the greatest snow assaults of all, the fullest revelation of God himself in Christ Jesus, exposing human autonomy as an illusion and revealing Jesus as the good Lord, but that a personal response is necessary, a firm rejection of autonomy and, and to replace it with surrender. But here's the thing, God won't force us to surrender if we insist on our autonomy. With tears in his eyes, he'll give us what we want. And the falseness of that illusion will become apparent. It's not that God pushes people off the ledge, 
old order is passing away to make room way for a new order that's coming, one where Jesus is Lord. That balcony will crumble and give way because in this new creation there's simply no space. There's nothing that exists outside the reign of Christ the King. There's no corner left in the universe for the illusion of the time. And this then is the impulse of the evangelical tradition to be roused and seek to rouse others from such slumber and embrace reality. The strengths of this tradition are that it reminds us of our need for external revelation. Something outside of ourselves has to happen for us to understand unseen spiritual reality. It keeps us committed to the scriptures as the authority on matters of faith. You see, without revelation, when it comes to the spiritual world, we can't observe it. So we need revelation. Otherwise, all we're left with is speculation. And that's not to say that the process is straightforward or easy, but our commitment is to start with the scriptures as normative and authoritative and to seek as much as we can together to discern as the church what God is saying and to surrender to it. And you might have heard an image of the three-legged stool which is often attributed to the Anglican tradition. It comes from one of the reformers, uh, John Hooker. He actually uh, didn't really talk about stool, but he, he mentioned these three aspects, scripture, reason, and tradition. And sometimes those things are pitched as if they're in competition with each other or equal. But Hooker himself actually intended for us to understand that the scripture is primary. The scripture is the authority. And where scripture is clear, we surrender to that clarity. The scripture is not always clear or easy to understand. And in that case, we surrender to it with the aid and power of reason. And that's not just any old human reason. That's reasoning that's been sanctified by surrender to the Lord, to what we know of God already. And then church tradition, what the church has said uh, for centuries, helps us in that process. So it's not a competition of those three elements, but it's a hierarchy of scripture as the authority. The second strength of this tradition is that it calls for a real faith commitment and conversion. And it challenges people to decide to follow Christ. And this is in line with Jesus did himself. He called people constantly. To, to turn to him, not to turn to him as something ancillary and sort of helpful, but to be primary, to be ultimate. And uh, if you read through the Gospels, you'll know the stark sayings that he gives. And some of this all or nothing sort of statement that he has about himself, and that is the invitation to make Jesus primary. Well, Jesus is very merciful. He knows it takes us a lifetime to learn to do this, but that is the point. The third strength of this tradition is that it gives us a sense of urgency for promoting the gospel message in different ways that we can, depending on our giftings. And one of the great things that we're doing, 
and we heard about tonight is the opportunity to promote the gospel by praying for Alpha, by prayerfully considering who we might invite to Alpha, by maybe helping the Alpha night in whatever way is appropriate. Uh, there are so many ways that we can each promote the gospel. You might not feel that you have the gift of evangelism, but all of us can at least be ready to hear the reason of hope that we have when asked. And that hope will be asked about when our lives are so, so radically interesting to people. That happens a lot this year. Some of the challenges or the perils of the evangelical tradition are that this strong commitment to to hold up the scriptures as primary can be that there can be a tendency to fixate on non-essential matters in the scriptures. So this can be a danger out of proper concern for the truth. Some people aren't able to distinguish on what is primary and what is secondary. All doctrines are important, but not all, all important to the same degree in the same way. So elevating, elevating secondary issues and making them primary can then lead to a sectarian mentality in the church where a group of people insists on breaking away, saying that they alone are the true church, everyone else must be alone. And in church history, there were important moments where the church needed to be clear about doctrine. Doctrine was really important. The things that were insisted on by the church fathers were the things that we sang about in the creed about the identity of Christ as both fully God and fully human, about God as three persons. These are the primary things. And that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is sufficient for our salvation. Now, there can be a tendency in the evangelical tradition to limit salvation to a message about making sure someone gets into heaven, right? Uh, it can limit our view as a person and kind of reduce them to just being a soul needing to be saved rather than a whole person with holistic needs. But Jesus, as we know when we've looked at in other traditions, calls us to love the whole person. And there can sometimes be an unhelpful individualistic focus on my personal salvation, my walk with God, rather than promoting my responsibility in the world. You see, the message is worse about getting to heaven, but God getting heaven into us. And that's going to lead to the fulfillment of all sorts of other-centered responsibilities towards others and to the whole world. So here's my exhortation to you. Take up and read. Read the scriptures. Read it in slabs. Read it in small doses. Read it like a novel. Read it like medicine. Whatever you do, take up and read. Take up and read. And you'll be refreshed continually by the smelling salts of scriptures. You'll be revived again and again to ultimate reality. Most of all, you'll find that the Lord Jesus becomes
are still living on that cliff edge on the top of you, get away and be roused to suffer so much more. The glorious knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord in his name and on his name. So this evening, I invite you to take the few little tools that I've provided to help you meditate further on this tradition and languages behind you and around the front here you'll find a booklet on the evangelical stream four passages from scripture that look at, at Jesus' own relationship with the scriptures some of the strengths and the pearls that I mentioned If we're in that quadrant, 